At the end of a quiet cul-de-sac at the top of a hill overlooking Los Angeles looms the scene of one of the city's strangest and most macabre murders. The place changed hands, but mysteriously, its new owners never officially moved in, and for the next six decades, the Los Feliz murder mansion sat like a tomb filled with the remnants of its bloody past. Stories about a murder scene frozen in time spread and grew into legend, and when the curious braved a peek through its crumbling windows, they discovered it was true. There was the food still in the cupboards. There was the television from the 1950s still in the living room, waiting to be switched on again. There sat the presents wrapped and tied with a bow, forever unopened. And upstairs, on a bedroom wall, a hand-painted peacock watched the years go by, suspended in the nightmare it saw on December 7, 1959, when Dr. Harold Pearlson took a hammer to his wife's head as she slept. This is a house with a history of sorrow. Today, we want to tell you a few of its secrets, as long as you promise not to tell a soul. I'm Chris, and this is True Crime Recaps. Of all the stories we've covered, this is by far the strangest. The Spanish-style mansion at 2475 Glendower Place in Los Angeles has fascinated people for more than a century. To separate fact from fiction, we tapped into research by the LA Times journalist, Jeff Mache at Medium and Cloud Day Pictures' award-winning Los Feliz Murder Mansion podcast to reveal the true story behind its bizarre history. But I think you'll find the house still has its secrets, no matter how many we spill. And the terrible thing in 1959 is only the beginning. It happened on the 6th of December at 4.30 a.m., a dark Sunday morning, still hours away from sunrise. As his wealthy neighbors dreamed their Hollywood dreams of deals being signed and galas to be attended, Dr. Harold Pearlson stood over his wife of 20 years, Lillianne. A ball-peen hammer clutched in his hand. On the wall behind the bed, a hand-painted peacock looked on blankly, the only witness to his madness. The doctor was a small man, only five foot seven and slight of build, but standing alone in the dark quiet as he was, with the hammer raised above his head, he seemed huge. Without hesitating, he swung the hammer down and crushed his sleeping wife's skull. Later, the coroner would reveal she died choking on her own blood, but her husband was already gone. With his hammer in hand, he passed through the shared master bathroom that connected their bedroom with that of their oldest daughter, 18-year-old Judy. But she didn't sleep as soundly as her mother. Something woke her. Maybe the muffled sounds of bloody violence in the next room. Maybe her guardian angel. Whatever it was, she opened her eyes to see the gleam of the hammer and the dim light from a street lamp just before her father brought it down on her head. Now, that quick glimpse gave her enough time to turn her head slightly. It wasn't an escape. The hammer cracked her skull, but she had saved her own life, and she let out a horrified scream. Even the neighbors across the street heard her say, Don't kill me. Harold told her to lie still. Be quiet. His words jolted her out of bed, and she ran back the way he had come, through the shared bathroom, into her parents' room. She saw her mother's body and knew what her father was capable of. She kept running, down the two-story spiral staircase, out the front door, down 51 steps to the street, and from there to the neighbors, holding her bleeding head. Now, back in the house, her younger brother and sister, 11-year-old Debbie and 13-year-old Joel, were running out of their bedrooms, confused and frightened. At the sight of them, Harold said, go back to bed, this is a nightmare. It certainly was, and it was far from over. 
The kids ran for the front door, only to find a neighbor on the porch. While they fled across the street to his house, he cautiously went upstairs to confront the doctor. When they came face to face, Harold told him, Go home. Don't bother me. Then he turned and walked back into the bathroom. The frightened neighbor retreated to the safety of the street to wait for the police. Harold was left alone in the house with Lillian's body. So, he continued forward with his twisted plan. From his medicine cabinet, he grabbed two doses of Nebutal, a heavy-duty sedative, and a bottle of codeine pills. Gripping the pink sink with his bloody hands, he gulped all of it down with water from the tap. When police found him shortly after 5 a.m., he was dead on the floor next to his bed. His head was on a bloody pillow from Judy's room. His fingers were still wrapped around the hammer. The only clue to his mindset was a book on his nightstand, Dante's Divine Comedy. It had been opened to Canto One. The last words he had read were, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. What made him snap? Fifty-year-old Harold Perlson had always been described as a mild-mannered family man. No one suspected he was capable of this kind of rage. But privately, he was struggling with financial difficulties and career disappointment. As a doctor, his specialty was cardiology, but in 1938, he filed a patent for a new drug injection machine he had invented. In 1949, he took on a partner who he hoped would help drive sales of his new machine. But by 1952, the partner had double-crossed him and made off with the invention and Pearlson's investment. He sued for damages, but in the end, the only people who got rich were the lawyers. In 1956, he moved his family into the Glendower Mansion with its four big bedrooms, three bathrooms, and a third-floor ballroom complete with its own bar. He must have been feeling very optimistic indeed. Unfortunately, just a year later, he found himself paying his lawyer again. His daughter Judy had been behind the wheel of her little sports car with Deborah and Joel when she got into an accident not far from their house. The kids suffered some minor injuries, but Harold was suing the other driver for causing the accident. He wanted $50,000, but he only got enough to cover their medical bills. And two years later, the family finances apparently still hadn't recovered. A letter to her aunt was found in Judy's car after the murder-suicide. In part, it said, My family are on the merry-go-round again. Same problems, same worries, only tenfold. My parents, so to speak, are in a bind financially. By the summer of 1959, Harold appeared to have given up. He attempted suicide at least twice in the months leading up to that terrible night. But each time he was hospitalized, his kids, co-workers, and patients were told he was being treated for heart problems. If she had lived, Lillianne was planning on having him committed after the holidays. Instead, the three kids went to live with their family on the East Coast. What happened to them from there is unknown. Some say Judy changed her name multiple times to avoid notoriety, and Joel fled to Israel. We do know they never were heard from publicly again, and most of the family's possessions stayed where they had been that night, in the house on Glendower Place. A year later in 1960, the house and all the furnishings was sold in a probate auction to Emily and Julian Enriquez. But they didn't move in. No one did. And the weeds grew tall around it, the front fountain ran dry, and for the next 56 years, the house crumbled into disrepair. But behind the dirty window screens, curious neighbors and thrill-seekers reported seeing a house 
filled with furnishings right down to the canned goods stocking the kitchen cabinets, as if it was a morbid time capsule keeping that bloody night forever frozen. Some visitors reported seeing presents still wrapped waiting to be opened in the living room. Then there was the general feeling of wrongness that hovered around the place. In the upscale Los Feliz neighborhood, a mansion falling apart as it seems for decades sticks out. But there was something more sinister about it. The house's two arching front windows gazed over the Los Angeles skyline like eyes. The broken gargoyle in the fountain grinned at those brave enough to take its picture. One neighbor remembered the night a visiting friend decided to go over and take a look inside. And she didn't get far when a black widow bit her hand and she was rushed to the hospital as the venom spread. After that, she said her alarm went off at her back door for weeks, but no one and nothing was ever there. In 1973, Julian Enriquez passed away from natural causes at his small family home in Lincoln Heights, about 20 minutes away from the mansion he owned. 21 years later, his wife Emily followed him, also taking her last breaths at their home in Lincoln Heights. The house and everything in it was left to their only child, Rudy, but he never moved in either. Instead, over the years, he and his parents used the mansion as a storage space, and by the time Rudy died of natural causes in 2015, at the age of 83, the amount of stuff stacked in the rooms at Glendower had grown to hoarder proportions. So who was he, and why didn't he want to live in the house? Rudy Enriquez grew up a devout Roman Catholic with ambitions to be a priest. But in the end, he chose to stay close to his parents. They owned a variety of homes and businesses in the L.A. area, but chose to live a modest life in Lincoln Heights. Rudy was in the military for a short time and eventually became a manager at a local music store. He went to the house to do minor repairs from time to time and drop off more stuff when he needed to. Sometimes he gave a key to friends who needed a place to stay temporarily, although to this day, the neighbors insist they never saw anyone living there. But when he was asked if the place was haunted, he would joke and say, if it was, the only creature haunting it was him. Yet he never sold the Pearlson's furniture, never removed the children's personal belongings that they'd left there never even cleaned away the remnants of that bloody night in 1959, although the crime scene cleaners got most of it at the time. Instead, he added his own things to theirs, even adding his own journal notes, to-do lists, and reminders to Dr. Pearlson's medical notes and files that had been left in the house after the murder. But friends of his say he kept the house because his parents had worked hard to buy it as an investment for him. It was special to them, so it was special to him until the day he died. But because he never married or had children, the house was once again left without a living owner. And for some strange reason, that pattern had been repeated over and over since it was built in 1925. The first owners were Florence and Harry Schumacher, and only three years after they moved in, they died in the house. But the strangest thing is that they both died in the same month, only 27 days apart. Florence died of a bacterial infection of the heart combined with kidney disease on July 1st, 1928. She was only 41 years old. Harry succumbed to pneumonia on July 28th, and he was 40. And even stranger, two months before they died, they listed the house for sale. At the time they passed away, they had no biological children, but they had adopted Florence's niece, Hazel, as their daughter. But she wasn't allowed to inherit the house and the rest of their sizable estate because she had gotten pregnant and married the boy without their permission at the age of 17. So, 
Without an heir, the property stayed vacant with all the furnishings in it, just as it was when they died. Sound familiar? Harry's brother was the executor. He attempted to sell the place. He even listed it with 15 different realtors, but no one wanted it, not even back then. It didn't have the most convenient layout. At the time, the driveway didn't go all the way up the hill to the back of the house. If you lived there, you'd be forced to hike up and down those 51 steps to the street level. Not even Harry's brother wanted to live there, and his wife was adamant that they sell it. But when the house couldn't catch a buyer, the young family moved in. No sooner had they unpacked than their youngest son fell deathly ill with a mysterious sickness. It's said even the doctor believed the house itself was making him sick. Eventually, they decided to rent it if they couldn't sell it. The first renter was German silent film director Frederick Zelnick. Some sources call him an owner, but no, he was just renting, and he didn't even stay for the full year his lease called for. He left with his wife six months later. The next renter was a film critic, and he wasn't living there long before his 21-year-old son, Donald Beaton, died of infection in the house. The next renter was British actor George Arliss. His name was used on the auction notice to attract buyers to the house. And finally, in 1931, the Stauffer family bought the mansion and all its furnishings that had been left there by the Schumachers. And it appeared that whatever curse the house may have had was lifted. The Stauffers added the driveway that curved up the hill around the back of the house, and they lived there happily with their son for 30 years. As they got older and didn't want to keep up the maintenance anymore, they moved to a luxury condo and donated the house to Whittier College. And for the next two years, it was vacant. Until the college sold it to the Pearlsons in 1956. And you know what happened from there. So let's talk about what happened to the house after Rudy Enriquez died in 2015. Again, the house sat empty. But in 2016, Lisa Bloom and her husband, Braden Pollock, bought it and everything in it for $2.29 in a probate auction. You might recognize her mother's name, Gloria Allred. Lisa is also a well-known lawyer. You may have seen her on Court TV or the Today Show. And her husband is a successful entrepreneur. At first, they planned to do what any home buyer would do, modernize it, renovate it, but keep as much of its history as possible. But that didn't happen because the only thing more powerful than the paranormal is City Hall. And when they presented their plans for permits, the city of Los Angeles said they couldn't complete the renovations without making significant changes to the grounds itself, which means they needed to tear it down and build something new in its place. They gutted it and removed all the Pearlson's possessions along with the Enriquez family's things, but just as they started renovations, they were told they couldn't continue. And in 2019, it went back on the market, still unlived in. In December 2020, it was purchased again under cover of an LLC, and since the house is unlivable as it is, we can assume it'll be torn down and something new will be built in its place. And before I say goodbye, I have a quick fun fact for you. Over the years, Judy Pearlson's custom light switch in her bedroom became pretty famous with curiosity seekers who were familiar with the story, and one of those people was reality star Stasi Schroeder. So, according to the Los Feliz Murder Mansion podcast, episode 6, when Rudy died and the house came up for sale again, the wife of a local real estate agent ended up in Judy's bedroom. She was armed with a screwdriver and a replacement light switch plate so she could take the infamous Judy plate with her. She gifted it to Stasi, and if you look closely, 
you can see what looks like blood still on it. Crazy, huh? And that's your recap. Thanks so much for spending some time with me today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, it would mean a lot if you took a second to give this a like and hit subscribe and the bell so you never miss a recap. Amy and I are here three times a week. Until next time, take care.